0: Shio Nagad. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Origin Story Podcast. I am your host, Michael Owl. Once a month, I ask an artist I respect to introduce me to a piece of work or an artist they love. This month, actor, screenwriter, television writer, and playwright, Bernardo Cubria introduces me to Pedro Amadovar's 2002 film, Talk to Her. Bernardo is a Mexican-born playwright and screenwriter. His The Play You Want premiered at L.A.'s Road Theater in 2022, garnering him both a Stage Raw Award and a Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle nomination for playwriting. It received its regional premiere at Milagro Theater in Portland in 2023. In 2019, Kubri was nominated for the Ovation, Stage Raw, and Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle's Best Playwright Awards for his play The Giant Void in My Soul. Other playwriting awards includes the Smith Prize for Political Theater. For film, he penned the feature screenplay Like It Used to Be and Guerrero, which Gina Rodriguez is attached to direct and star in. He was a 2023 Sundance Screenwriters Lab Fellow for the screenplay Kill Your Idols, which he co-wrote, and that Carlos Lopez Estrada is attached to direct. He was also a writer on season three of Acapulco, on apple plus as mentioned bernardo does many things but in support of the writers guild strike and the screen actors guild strike for this conversation we focus only on his playwriting i hope to have him back on after the strikes so you can hear more about his other work which is quite impressive bernardo is smart talented kind and funny he works his ass off i had a ball during the conversation i hope you enjoy it as well without further ado Rodrigo Acubria, welcome to the Origin Story Podcast, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So I have already introduced you, your glowing accolades, that I'm sure it would make you cringe if I were to do those in person. Uh, but uh, for, the, for everyone else, just how would you explain it? Uh, what do you do for a living? What do you, why are you on the podcast?
1: Well, I think I'm on the podcast because we're friends. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is <laughs> first and foremost. I think that's number one. And then uh, I, I am now, how I make my living is I'm a writer. So, but playwriting and TV and film.
0: Outstanding, outstanding. So right now, your industry, we are, you're, there are two strikes going on, right? There's a writer's guild strike and an actor's strike. Uh, you are a member of both unions, I do believe. Yeah. Uh, could you give us just, you know, a little cliff notes version of what's going on and why these issues are important?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, the main issue is greed and corporate greed. (laughs) That's honestly capitalism. Those are like the main issues that we're dealing with here. And it's just about people trying to maximize profits and make stockholders happy. And usually the people who suffer when that happens are the workers. And in this particular fight, the workers are writers or performers. And uh, so, you know, I understand that some people have less empathy or sympathy for people who are, you know, artists, but I think it's really important that we win this fight because I think it's gonna set a precedent for a lot of other industries. And, you know, some of the major uh, factors that we're dealing with are not being paid uh, a living wage, not being able to survive. You know, we're living in a more and more expensive world every day. I think people from all industries are feeling that. Rents are going up. Uh, cost of living is going up, gas is going up, but yet our uh, salaries aren't going up. And so we just want to be paid a living wage so that we can, you know, uh, afford to raise families and even pay rent, not even a mortgage. Some people just want to pay rent, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's the main thing. And then there's the, you know, overall fear of AI and what that's going to do. And I do think it's coming and I think it's terrifying <laughs> but I think it's coming for lots of jobs all over the world, you know? So, so yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that. and I appreciate that. And so we are going to support that or do what we can. Uh, you know, Bernardo is restricted from, from working right now on on a guild project acting wise and writing wise. And for this podcast today, we're going to concentrate on the playwriting side of things in theater, which is not covered by either one of these unions or, uh, strikes. So, uh, With that being said, I want to dive right into what you kind of were just doing here. Uh, And I want to talk about the play, and I want to get this title correct. (laughs) The Hispanic Latino Latina Latinx Latin Vote. Is that that it?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: Because that is an outstanding title. I just got (laughs) to just go ahead and say that. Uh, Uh, Will you tell me about the origins of this play and kind of what... The process is uh, a lot of our listeners will not be as very familiar with kind of the inside theater kind of lingo and things. But if you would kind of talk a little bit about that, I think that'd be great.
1: Sure. So, this is a commission, which means that a theater pays you to write them a play. And what happened was, thanks to a friend of mine who works at Florida Studio Theater in Sarasota, uh, Rachel Moulton, who's someone I did a play with 10 years ago in New York, 11 years ago. I, I've known her as long as I've known you, you know, one of these old New York theater pals. Uh, she recommended me to this theater. I then pitched three ideas for plays to that theater. And one of them was this one and they, they seemed to like it and they approved of it. And basically the, the pitch for this play was that after the 2016 election, my phone started blowing up from non-Latino friends, sending me links to articles about how 30% of Latinos had voted for Trump and how dare we, we had cost the country. We had sold out the entire country. It was all our fault. And I started getting pretty upset because I thought, well, 60% of white people voted for him. So, why is this our fault? (laughs) Why are people texting me this? What did I do here? You know, 30% of an entire population is actually pretty small, you know? Uh, And so I started thinking, why is there an understanding within my own community as well that all of us should have the same opinion? And why should any group of people be a monolith? Why would we ever think that any group of people is a monolith? No matter what that grouping is, right? People who live in Atlanta all don't agree with each other, right? People right, at a sure. restaurant don't all agree with each other. So why should all Latinos uh, feel and think the same? And uh, and yeah, and then they paid me money, which is very kind and very rare in theater. So I got very lucky there, and I'm very grateful for that. And um, and then I started going. I started flying to uh, Sarasota and to Portland, Oregon, to interview Latino voters. And then through those interviews, I then wrote this play that is hopefully a satire on what is a monolith and what is a community and what is identity, you know?
0: Oh, wow. Uh, I kind of want to know what the other two pitches were. Were they plays that you'd already written or ideas you, that you had you wanted to write? So
1: honestly, I don't remember what they were. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't, You know, what's funny is I, I led with the one that, and that, that they went with. And I I was really excited about that. And I think the other two were like half-ass ideas that are somewhere on a notebook somewhere, you know? Tell me about interviewing the voters in Portland and Florida. Dude, it's been amazing. Life-changing for me. It's kind of exposed me to my own prejudices and my Mm -hmm. own sort of judgments, right? Like, to be frank, being a uh, Mexican person who grew up in Texas, I have a lot of judgment on like what I would call Miami Cubans, which is like a ridiculous, you know, like all of them are the same. So I was doing the very same thing I was mad at, you know. And I met a lot of Cubans in Sarasota all who have very differing political opinions. You just realize how dangerous our listening of political podcasts is and how dehumanizing it really is, you know. And I spoke to some really beautiful people who had very empathetic reasons for voting the way that they do, even if they are different from me. And it really blew up my worldview in a lot of ways, you know, uh, that I hope is reflected in the play. But yeah, I mean, you know, you realize like, who the fuck am I to judge a person who was put on a raft when they were six years old, you know, because communism took over their country and, Now they have a certain political belief. Now, I may still want to change that political belief and alter it and affect it, but, you know, I'm a pretty privileged person in terms of how I came to this country, and I've never been on a raft at six years old and forced to separate from my family. And, you know, it calls it into question when you're looking at a human being in the eyes (laughs) and actually being told that story rather than reading it in an article on like, you know, whatever, Twitter, you know?
0: Completely. Yeah. Uh, When you were doing the interviews, had you already had like, I guess, a scenario in mind writing wise, or did you like kind of do all the kind of the preliminary work first and then go kind of start to write out a
1: story? I knew that I wanted it to be about a professor of Latinx studies that was hired by the political party is what it's called in the play. I love that. And and the political party hires a professor of Latinx studies to basically explain Latinos to them, right? Like, help us. Why are we failing, right? Because I think both parties are very interested in understanding the mythical uh, Latino Latinx person, right? And so that I knew I wanted to sort of enter it that way. Uh, but then the interviews actually I think what they mostly did was change my worldview and change what I thought I wanted the play to say, you know? Mm. Um, and so I hope it's less about politics and more about empathy. <laughs> and I hope that's what the play is about. Yeah. While, well, yeah. Anyway. No,
0: okay. Continue, please.
1: No, that's it. That's it. I mean, you know, yeah.
0: There's two main narrative, uh, timelines not really timelines but narrative yeah. um, what do you call it it's a narrative something yes yeah, anyways i don't know two, yeah, uh, yeah. there's two main yeah. narratives in the play one involves uh her new job and working for the party and trying to figure out the uh the vote and the other involves uh her attempts uh to have a baby yeah uh when did that half of the storyline come into your head or was that always there and could you talk a little bit about that and how they complemented each other
1: Yeah. So they were always in my head. I just never knew how they came together until I started writing the thing, you know, but basically, so at that time that I was getting these text messages from friends who were like, how dare the Latinos do this to America? Right. Uh, I was also, my wife and I were in the process of trying to have our second kid. And, uh, and that process felt like the most nuanced and human thing I'd ever gone through in my life. And the text messages felt like the most two-dimensional version of life. And so I was like, how can I make these two things crash into each other in a play to kind of hold them against one another, to show people like trying to have a child is such a nuanced, difficult thing, right? And if that is held up against making everyone from a community talk uh, feel the same way, maybe we can kind of like explode and make people think of my community as more nuanced or something, you know? Yeah. But again, like that took me, I, I didn't know how those two storylines would have to do with one another. And to be frank, the first draft, I think it was just two plays, you know? And then thanks to Sean Daniels and this amazing cast that we've been working with in Florida, and then an amazing director and cast in Portland, Oregon, you know, I've started to meld the two stories. I hope, you know, that's, that's the goal.
0: So you were just in Florida this past weekend, right? What was going on there and what part of the process is or was that?
1: So this is the third workshop this play has had, right? Which is insanely uh, lucky and privileged. I mean, as you and I were talking before the interview, the American theaters in like major trouble right now. So the fact that I'm getting any amount of money to d- develop anything is like incredibly lucky and privileged. So that's what I had. I had a week to work on a play with an amazing cast, right? So for people who don't know anything about theater, you go into a room, you read the play, people give you feedback, and then you write, you know? So the first night we read the play, I got feedback from the director and the cast. And then that night I stayed up till five in the morning and I did a a full pass on the play, right? Doesn't mean the whole play changed, but it did evolve and change a lot, right? trying to clarify the stories, these two narratives that you're talking about. And, um, and you know, just uh, refine, refine, refine. I mean, you're, you're a writer also, you know, like that's basically what you're doing always is just refining, 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 and trying to make uh, what you think is supposed to come across, come across, right? Um, and so that was it. And then at the end of the week, we did a reading for 120 people in the theater, which was amazing. Amazing to have that. Uh, well, here's what's cool, man. So they that theater is one of the few that's thriving. And what it is, is they are in Sarasota and most of the people there are retirees, right? So they have time to go to the theater. <laughs>
2: yeah, and
1: so right. Florida Studio Theater, I think has seven theaters and they sell out everything. Really.
0: Good gravy. I mean, it's that's insane.
1: Awesome. Yeah. It's like, not this is not what most people are dealing with, right? But they have a very loyal fan base that also has a lot of fucking free time. Right? <laughs> and so these people come out and support, dude, and God bless them, you know? So it was, that was amazing, dude. I mean, again, like, you know, so much of my theater career has been like putting on a play and then texting people, begging them to come right. Non-theater people dreading having to go see a play. Cause that's what <laughs> it seems like most non-theater people think of theater. And so it was amazing, dude. It was amazing to do the reading have a response, see that some of it seems to be working really well, you know, and have people respond to it positively. Some people didn't like all the F words. (laughs) Some people think the title's weird, you know, uh, so, you know, things like that. Uh, but it was cool. And I got some really good feedback that I'm trying to implement now before I forget it all, you know,
0: was there any like major surprises uh, in the process?
1: I mean, I was always really afraid that people not from my community would not care about the play, you know, or be bored by it. I think I have, this is probably, you know, uh, opening, you know, but I, I have a deep insecurity that the traditional theater audience doesn't care about me or my worldview. <laughs> and what that comes from is, you know, my <laughs> plays have always done well with younger people, right? And I think this is a thing we can unpack now if you want, but I've always longed, even though I don't really care and I have a lot of judgment on them, I've always longed to be accepted by sort of the traditionally older theater audience, you know? And I always fear that my plays are not like, you know, the kind of play that can be done anywhere in the world and they'll all like it, you know? Like Our Town or Midsummer or those plays, you know, that kind of like, don't push too many buttons kind of just you know and i love those plays by the way it's not a judgment on them but i think my plays aren't like that usually you know uh but yet i want those people to love my plays does that make sense
0: it does man makes well, of course yeah it makes perfect sense and yeah. i what do you when you when you say that is there a specific audience you have in mind or are you is this a uh, like yeah, a theoretical old white broadway yeah right It's old white people right old white people regionally and in new york i imagine yeah. too
1: yeah, everywhere. Yeah, it's it's old white people, even in New York, right? Who, who you know, we can talk about that also, but the New York theater world, I think fancies itself different or more important or something, you know, it's all BS. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're doing a play at the public, you know, I got to act in one, you're performing for old white people. I mean, that's, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. what it is. And, yeah. and those are the people with the money, those are people with the influence on what that institution is doing, Right. Right, And so there's this weird thing of, I want those people to love me, but I also want to be authentic to my humanity and who I am. And melding those two is a very complicated thing that takes a toll on you. That's why I have this gray beard, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) At least you got hair, brother.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to give you the opportunity per every podcast you've recorded to talk a little bit about clowning. And because I think that is something that is not understood in the theater world. I mean, in the theater world it is, but not in the normal world. And sure. what that means, because I know that's important. And, and if there's a through line in, in the plays, at least that I've been able to read, you know, that aspect of it is, is clearly there pretty much in everything that I read uh, to, to some degree. Uh, could yeah. you tell a little bit about your, the, the background in clowning and how that has affected you as a performer
1: and an artist and a writer? Yeah. So when I graduated from theater school, you know, my plan was to move to New York. But one of my best friends, Andrew Hurst, said to me, hey, I'm going to go to this Commedia dell'arte school in Italy for three months. You want to come with me? And I didn't really know what Commedia dell'arte was. I, I didn't know what he meant, but I thought, why not go fucking live in Italy for three <laughs> months before I go be poor in New York, right? I'll go Amen. be poor in Italy. Well, that'll be fun. And so uh, me and another friend followed Andrew, not knowing really what we were doing. I mean, I'll never forget the first day I walked into this class. You know, we're standing up and doing like, for people who don't know, Comedia is like a very physical, old-timey, like 17th century, you know, Italian theater where you wear masks that have penises on them as noses and you have a slapstick in your hand. I mean, it's so crazy. And I showed up and I was like, what the fuck have I done? And I was so mad at my friend, Andrew. Like, dude, what are we doing? <laughs> You know, we're like, uh, uh, it's like Civil War reenactment or something. It's like, what are we doing here? Nobody cares about this. (laughs) Right. And then about three days in, I was like, I love this and I'm obsessed with it. And it's, you know, I love clowning. It's, I, people make fun of me for this, but it's kind of my life, my life philosophy. You know, it's become like, it's replaced Catholicism for me. (laughs) And what it is, is. Clowning at its essence, to not bore in theater lexicon, but in like life lexicon, is about not being attached to the things you plan and actually embracing the unexpected and allowing play to be the thing that motivates you. And I think Mm -hmm. that is a very good way to approach uh, life and especially creativity, right? Uh, and so clowning influences everything I do, you know, like I think everyone can write however they want. I think people who go on Twitter and yell at people about how they should write a movie or a play are insane and need to get over themselves. (laughs) But so I don't outline because I believe in this philosophy, which is clowning allows you to just follow the spirit of what your idea is and be okay with the fact that you will fail, that a lot of the words you write will be deleted and will be bad but you don't judge yourself so much. And so that way you get to finish things uh, more often, right? Because I think one thing that gets in the way of most people I know who are writers is that they don't finish things. They have a laptop filled with 27 half-written plays, half-written screenplays, and they actually could. It's just that they're judging themselves too much. They don't think it's Yeah, right? And yeah, you're so, absolutely right. Yeah, and so I think clowning helped me Be like, it's okay that it sucks because you're just trying, you're playing, right? Like, our, you know, you have a son, I have two kids. When they play, they're not judging themselves. (laughs) Oh, no,
0: there's no, it's funny. Like if you've, I've been in a few workshops, you know, the kind of theater related, but also kind of business related. And, you know, you ask an adult to, you know, give them a wash rag and, you know, hey, this is a dinosaur. And the adult's like, well, this is not a dinosaur. The kids are like, yeah, it's a dinosaur, you know, just, just playing around with it.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, even when I taught language as my survival job in New York, what I learned was the reason kids are better at learning a language is exactly what you just said. If I tell an adult, chair is see ya, right? Then an adult's brain is like, what is C Is that Latin? Does it is there a French word <laughs> like that? But in French, it says they've already died. They've never they've not learned the word, right? Right. And a kid, you're like, this is C They're like, cool, C next word. You know, they don't have this judgment that's destroying their brain, you know? Yeah. They just roll with it. Yeah, they just uh, do
0: it. Tell me about LA compared to New York, uh, lifestyle wise and theater wise. because uh, you've been there in LA how long now?
1: Uh, Nine years, I think, this Thanksgiving. Good gravy. I think so. Yeah, nine years, something like that, which is crazy. I mean, look, man, when I lived in New York, I thought I hated LA. I had all these judgments. I thought it was a fake place filled with fake people. And parts of that are true,
2: right? (laughs) But again,
1: to to this notion of a monolith, right? I didn't Mm -hmm. really know what the fuck I was talking about. I had never been to LA, you know, except to Disneyland. And then when we got here, what I learned for myself was that New York was a really great place to be in my 20s. And, you, and LA was a really great place to be in my 30s and to be an adult in. Because for me, everybody's different. Life is easier in LA. Like you can drive a car up to a supermarket and put your groceries in there. You don't have to carry them onto the subway and in the cold and the bag breaks and you're on Fifth Avenue and you know all of your groceries are on the ground. Uh, th- that's not a thing, right? There's also just way more work here uh, in terms of, you know, TV and film, there's just so much more work that it was easier for me to break in. Right. Like, uh, there's just way more opportunities here. Now, is that also the timing and being in this, the game longer and all that, who knows, but I also was accepted by LA in the way that I wanted to be accepted in this moment of my life. Right. Which means that I could make a living doing what I'm doing. Right. Right. Uh, I tell this story a lot, but one of the last straws for me in New York was I was doing a play at the public theater, which was all I ever wanted to do. I was a yeah. lead in a Shakespeare play. And that for me was making it by the way, that to oh, me yeah. was Broadway. Like that was it. That's all I wanted. Completely. I understand that. And, uh, our friend Bixby Elliott, who you and I were in a theater company with came hey, to see Bixby. the play one night and Bixby and I afterward went to the bar at the public, uh, to have a drink and I ordered two old fashions and I gave him my card and my card bounced. And Bixby was very sweet and acted like it didn't even happen and paid for the drinks. And I thought, I'm a lead at a Shakespeare play at the public theater, and I can't even afford two drinks. Yeah. And I was like, I, I can't do this anymore, Fuck you know? Yes. <laughs> like, I don't want to be 60 and like having four hustle jobs, right? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, a lot of that experience at the public was eye-opening to me about what I thought that was and what it was for me, you know? Tell me. Uh, well, uh, you know, I was very grateful to be in the play and it was amazing. It's part of this thing called the mobile unit where you take a Shakespeare play to prisons all over uh, New York City. And that was amazing and one of the most fulfilling experiences I've ever had in my life. Right. And it was cool to take the play to prisons, to community centers and to take it outside of the old white rich theater people that I was performing for. Right. Yeah. But then when we got back to the public, we had been told that, you know, everything that happens at the public that on the road was the most important thing that the public theater does and da da da, and don't dumb it down for that audience. And, you know, all audiences are the same, which I believe and I thought was great. And then when we got back, we started getting like strange notes about like making it okay for the rich white people, you know, and asking us to change the play. Not from our director, by the way, this was from the institution. The director is amazing. He's one of the people I've learned the most from in my life. And I was like, oh, so you don't think that people at the community centers are the same as the people who come to the play here, right? There's a classism there and an elitism that I think is a disease in all of the American theater that I didn't really like and really disappointed me and made the run at the public theater kind of depressing for me because the run on the road was like one of the most fulfilling things I'd ever done. And it was really alive and they allowed us to improvise and it was just so like fucking real, you know. And then this felt stuffy and like the New York Times is coming and we must do Shakespeare correct, you know. And uh, again, it wasn't any of the artists involved. Right. It was the institution coming down on us out of fear of these people who were coming. Out of and fear. so that exactly. and being underpaid for it and being broke. <laughs> right. Made me go, yeah, I don't think this is what I wanted to do theater for, you know? Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Disappointing,
0: disillusioning experience.
1: It was. But at the same time, I don't want to speak too ill of it because it was an amazing experience. Like, all the actors in the play were amazing. Our director, Kwame, is this amazing genius. I mean, one of the best directors I've ever worked with. You know, I learned so much from him. So it was a really positive experience and the road again was life changing. That was like one of the coolest things that's ever I've ever experienced. It was just realizing that the institution of the American theater. I don't think it's just it's not the public. It's the whole beast, right? Yeah. At the end of the day it's so beholden to a kind of uh elite uh attendee, right? Uh sort of not elite. I don't that word is like misused, but like a kind of classism that I don't think the theater wants to be. And I think that's when theater fails, right? When it's trying to appease a worldview rather than challenge it. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. yeah. It, makes,
0: it makes perfect sense. And I think it's a problem, yeah. not just in institutional theaters, but also just the rest of our lives right now. Totally. This is, totally. This is agree. the battle that's going on right yeah. now, I think. Yeah. And so it's, it's it basically
1: like. the battle for these strikes, right? It's like, what? why Why are we uh, Why are we trying to please the 1%? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Because I control that's the not... goddamn thing. But yeah,
0: that's why. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, exactly. Well, that's why people are doing it. Uh, What is Crabs in a Bucket?
1: So Crabs in a Bucket uh, is a crazy play that I wrote about five years ago when I was probably at my lowest. I was in a really dark, uh, bitter place. And I was thinking about bitterness and what it does. And I had become that guy who would like – I had a couple friends who we would – we were both bitter. All of us were very bitter about where our careers were at. And we spent a lot of times at bars talking about people we had worked with, people who were more successful than us, and talking shit. And we were just talking a lot of shit, way too much shit, you know? And that play's not even good. I couldn't even enjoy theater anymore. I was just in a really dark place. So I wrote this play to kind of exercise all that. And it's a play about what bitterness does, right? And what happens when you turn on your own community. And the play is about actual crabs that live in a bucket. <laughs> And dude, I, I just, this uh, last month had a production of it done here in LA, which was insane. Cause I never thought that play would get produced. And it was an amazing team. My director, Alana Dietz is a fucking genius of American theater. I can't speak uh, enough about her. She's just amazing. And we had this really cool run, man. And it's, it was cool to have, you know, we had really good attendance. People seemed to really enjoy the play. And, you know, it was cool to see people connect with, sort of this like allegory about bitterness and the conversations I got to have with people afterward was really, really cool. Um, But yeah, that's what it is. It's supposed to be a comedy also, but it's, you know, it's a strange play, you know? Yeah.
0: It's awesome. When you talk a little bit about when you write something like this, this is absurdist, you have humans playing crabs, you have a large bucket, you've got dead crabs, you've got, you know, crabs as weapons. (laughs) Um, So when you write that, uh, one of my favorite uh, stage like lines or whatever from a playwright like class I took was like you know write impossible stage directions. Yeah, just throw yeah. it out there. Let them figure it out. Will you talk a little bit about that dichotomy between being the playwright who has set up this thing and then being involved, of course, yeah. but not being you know depending on how, your level of involvement. What is that like handing over that range? to because they have to create the bucket, they have to figure yeah. out what these crabs look like. Uh, would you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, what why I love theater is you can write anything, you know, in the theater. I actually love when plays are like, like, there's this American college, I read like an Artaud play, who's like this weird French playwright, you know, and at one point, like, sand rains from the ceiling, right? And I was like, fucking amazing, you know, like, how, what, and what does that mean? And what's cool about theater is it can be as, you know, simple as like a blue sheet is water, as to like, sometimes, like, the creative nature that comes from being uh, broke (laughs) and you want to create magic on a stage, I think makes the coolest theater shit, right? When people have to use their bodies because they can't afford to build something else. Right. Or so, you know, but what I also know about myself is I'm really good at coming up with crazy ideas like that on my laptop at 3am. I'm not good (laughs) at executing them because I can barely fix a cabinet, you know, I can barely put together an Ikea furniture. So, I just hire really smart people, usually a director, and then that person brings in amazing designers. And that's what we had for the production here. You know, our, for example, our costume designer is named Lou Cranch, and she's a friend of mine here in uh, LA who's never done a costume for a play ever, but she does like crazy costumes for like Katy Perry concerts. Oh, wow. Or Gwen Stefani concerts. And so I thought it would be good to bring someone who wasn't a theater person in to create these crab costumes because they would think of it differently. Right. And the costumes were freaking phenomenal. I mean, if anybody says anything about the production, like the one thing everybody felt was like, who made those costumes? (laughs) How do you make a crab costume that's not like a cheesy, plushy suit that you're like, this is the dumbest play I've ever seen, but yet is like cool and hip and like almost look like something Kanye West would design. You know, it's like weird, you know. so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but you know that I think when you're writing a play, anything is possible because anything can happen on a stage, anything, anything at all. You know, it's just how you execute it, which is the right. fun challenge, right? Yeah,
0: and I, th- yeah. I think any art, I, I think all, all art is like that. You can do whatever you want, pretty much, if you do it well enough and with confidence. Yeah, like the totally. people that say things have to be a certain way, um, I just yeah. you know don't think that's true.
1: Yeah, F those people, and also. You know, I don't like CGI. I'm not like a fan of it. I think it's like boring. I'm not really like a superhero movie guy. You know, I love movies that like, you know, what's funny. I've been watching like a, all these 90s movies with my son and I rewatched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, right? Yeah. Does it hold and, up? Like, well, what's amazing is like they built a giant cereal bowl, right? Like nowadays that movie would be all CGI. But because they actually built a giant cereal bowl and put actors in it to make them look like they shrunk, yeah. it looks fucking awesome. And like I love that shit. And that theater, you you don't have CGI, so you have to do that, right? Yeah. And it makes uh, the artistry so cool because you're not like faking it; you're actually building these things, you know. Right. And I miss that. I, I you know I I hope that that comes back in film too. You know.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, and we we will get in the next uh little segment we'll talk about some uh, yeah, some yeah, practical yeah. or or or, CGI, or I'm yeah, not yeah, sure how yeah, they do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was crazy. Uh, tell me a little about your writing routine now cuz right now cuz you have you have two children, you are married, you are a day job as a TV writer. Uh, when how do you think about plays and writing them and, and what is your routine at the moment?
1: When I think about plays always, because I love theater and like, this is my great curse is that like, my favorite thing to do is black box theater. This is, you know, why, you know, thank God I married my wife, you know, because if not, I'd be destitute somewhere right now. But (laughs) uh, here, so here's what's changed. When I was in New York, you know, what I had was a girlfriend who's now my wife, right? But like, it's so funny. I don't know if you think about this. I had so much fucking time and I thought I didn't, you know, I had so much time in a day. And I had this romantic notion that writers write at from midnight to 5 a.m. with a cocktail and a cigarette, right? And, and neon that's what sign flashing
0: yeah. in the window. Yeah.
1: And so I was like, that's how I wrote my first place, right? Yeah. And it all had to come from pain and it was this thing. And then you have kids and you grow up and you're like, dude, you have from 10 to 12 to write today. That's it. And so you can't wait to get inspired. And that's the biggest change. But that actually, I think, is the best thing that happens because then you just write every day and you're exercising your muscle. And then again, to the clowning thing, it's okay that maybe the first 20 minutes of the thing you're writing are going to suck because you're not there yet, but you're learning how to access it on cue more and more and more rather than only writing after you just watched, you know, Blue Valentine at a movie theater and now you're inspired, you know what I mean? Like, Or just listen to a Radiohead song. Like, no, you have to write that's it. It's your job. You know, like, you know, my dad, when he he's had many jobs, but like when he was a real estate agent, he didn't get to only go sell a house when he was in the perfect mood. Right. Right. He had to go sell a house after a giant fight with his wife and, you know, being disappointed that his son failed an exam. Right. <laughs> and so that was the biggest change for me that I think was just growing up is like, dude, art is a job also, you know, it's Do not you have anything just- that yeah that's it yeah
0: it's not just yeah it's not just uh, a nebulous kind of mystical <laughs> yeah. thing though there's elements to that of it which i kind of love also uh, yeah. is there anything that primes the pump that gets you going or is it now or you got it to where you're like fuck it it's 10 a.m this is where i am this is what i'm doing
1: no i mean i try i mean dude i have so many days that are massive fails you know there are days where One, like YouTube is a disaster for me. Like I need to turn off my internet on my laptop because I will have days where I sit down to write and then six hours have gone by and I've watched every single Hot Ones episode where celebrities eat spicy chicken wings and you're like, what the fuck did I just do with my day? (laughs) Yeah, completely. So that's a part of it, right? Yeah. But I do think I'm better at writing more often right now at this moment in my life than I was uh, when I first started, right? Yeah. But look, I've gotten to I th- Yeah. You say? Yeah, please.
0: No, no, that's it. I was going to say I've started to where I will take a little walk and listen to an audio book, a craft audiobook. Because I've always, like, if I, as long as I have a project going on, if I'm reading a craft book or if I'm listening to one, like, it spurs some kind of ideas or momentum or at least, like, whatever inspiration to get me to sit down. It's um, so
1: true, man. Yeah. I mean... You know, I think one thing that's happened recently for me is because I have kids, a lot of the content I consume is like kid shit, right? Which I love. I love kid stuff, but I don't write kid stuff. And so now I've just started trying to watch things again because we don't really watch a lot of TV in my house. And that, like um, listening to script notes instead of a fantasy football podcast, right? That's right. a decision I make every morning, right? And yeah. that is a really important decision for how creative I will be, you know? So, yeah, I I totally agree. It's like keeping yourself inspired, you know. Tell me about the play you want. So the play you want actually is a result of crabs in a bucket not being produced anywhere for a long time. Hmm. So I would send out crabs in a bucket. And especially from Latino theaters and Latino theater festivals, the response was, we love the play, but it's not Latino. And I would go, well, I'm Mexican, so it is Latino, right? And that really made me upset. And I started thinking, what is a Latino play? I started getting frustrated with this notion that, you know, all Latino stories have to be about narcos or the border or drug dealers. So I wrote this play that the play you want that I never thought would get done. That's about a playwright named Bernardo. (laughs) It's very on the nose. And he pitches his agent as a joke, a play Narcocos, which is about narcos on Day of the Dead. And it gets rushed into production at the public theater and then goes to Broadway. And eventually Gloria Stefan is in the play and Lin-Manuel Miranda and John Leguizamo. And it's kind of like my version of the producers, right? Like, which I love that play and that musical. But it's about what is a Latino story? What are the things that get programmed in the American theater? And why is it, why are they mostly about the pain of people of color, right? Like mm-hmm. that to me is like what I think theater's, for a while have thought is like the way to advanced like equality is to only put on plays where people of color suffer so that old white people will still come to the theater. And I think that's a giant mistake. Um, yeah.
0: That, that's an issue in the native American community. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Continual uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, sure. It's a, it's a hilarious uh, play and I really love it. Oh, thanks man. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but it's uh, true, right? Because people, for Native American stories, it's like only about the disappearing women, or only about, you know, which are important issues, right? But right. there's way more to being a Native American person than just the things that people want to write plays about, right? Or alcoholism, Com- or casinos, or that bullshit, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. And you're a Mexican playwright, so therefore, any play you write is going to be a Mexican play. Yeah, uh, exactly. Whether it's lat- Latin enough or not. There's a, yeah. uh, Morgan Talty is a Native writer from Maine, I think he's Penobscot, uh, tribe there. And he had a really successful uh, short story collection come out called Night of the Living Res. But one of the stories, you know, the guy's eating a sandwich, like, man, this is the best Native American sandwich ever made. It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, it was like, well, I'm a Native American. I'm eating it. It's fucking Native American sandwich. You know, that kind of thing. And that's, honestly, that's where it ends for me. You know, yeah, it's like, me you can't, let's not censor each other as we're trying to fucking create art
1: yeah exactly
0: uh speaking of creating art let's take a little break and when we come back uh i want to talk about talk to her yes uh, the movie you introduced me to okay we'll be right back hi just a quick break to let you know that we are going to talk about with spoilers talk to her so if you've not yet seen the film you might want to put off listening to this part of the discussion Bernardo Cubria, you introduced me to a movie called Talk to Her by Pedro Almodovar. Almodovar. I do it again.
1: Um, Almodovar. Yeah. Almodovar.
0: Yeah. Almodovar. Thank you very much. Uh, How did you find the writer-director and this movie in
1: particular? So, you know, I saw this movie randomly with my family in Mexico at a movie theater in Mexico. Uh, you know, Almodovar was a famous director, but to be frank, when I saw it, I think I was 19 or whatever I was. I had just started theater school and my mom took me to go see this movie by a famous uh, Spanish director who I had never seen his, his work. And I just remember being so blown away in that movie theater. I mean, just truly one of those life-changing works of art. And I just thought, Oh, my God, I didn't know film could be this or do this look like this, you know, because so much of his stuff is the way his films look, you know, and I was just blown away. So moved. And it's still it's, you know, easily one of my favorite pieces of art ever made, you know.
0: Yeah. So he was a guy who I had heard of. Yeah. And knew that I should have been watching and sure. do, the, you know, and I would just, you know, somebody brought him up for one of his movies. I, I'm sure I would be silent, smile, yeah. Yeah. try to give off the energy of, I know who you're talking about, but yeah, like, yeah, you know, you, yeah. you tell me about it. Uh, <laughs> so I was really, really happy uh, to have an excuse, which is this whole podcast was what it is, yeah. uh, to reach out and watch the movie, which I, and I also loved it.
1: Uh, what makes it special for you? there's a, it's the emotion of it, you know, it's so emotional. I I don't know how to say it, but I just feel it. And it's a, you know, if you think about what the story is really about, like, if I just pitched it to you, I don't think I would care, you know, like, you know, uh, two men deal with women. that are in a coma that they're in love with two strangers meet and then they connect, you know, like, I don't really know what that's about, you know, but it's him. It's execution. I mean, it just proves that every idea, the that, that sort of one-sentence idea of a story is really not that important. So much of it is about the execution. And the acting in this movie is fucking insanely good. The music uh, and also the risks he takes, Right. Like, uh, you know, there's a moment where someone goes to see a silent film and a man walks into a woman's vagina, right? And (laughs) why is that in the movie? Uh, You know, I think it's clear to me why it's in the movie, but it's really moving. There's a scene where, for no reason at all, he has this famous Brazilian singer who I love, Caetano Veloso, sing Cucurru Cucu Paloma, right? For no reason. It literally has nothing, you know, if you were just to follow Save the Cat, they wouldn't, they tell you to cut it, Right. Completely. But it's so
0: emotional. Yeah. So that's, I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, there are so many moments where I thought to myself, like, this does not serve the story when you're examining it from like a beat sheet type thing or a save the cat type thing. Like, hell, the opening image of the dance, the Cafe Mueller yeah. dance thing, which goes on a long time. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. And it's just, but like, it's not necessary. Yeah. But it is; it's the execution, and then you know you see that they're both there and they're meeting randomly. But that could have been done so much quicker, so you much know if quicker. they wanted to. But it's part of the texture that he adds that he adds in, which is I just I kind of yeah. love that. Another, um, it's like it helps. It takes it, it takes time, like it's it's slow. It's assured. It knows the story it's telling when uh, when he when he goes to visit uh in the prison. Oh my! You know God. he goes up to one window, and they're like, "No, it's 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 over there." Yeah, and so then he goes up to the other place, and yeah. then like he can't really hear, her, so she has to go on the phone. Like, there's none yeah. of that's necessary. None of But it. it's yeah. all the thing that makes it gorgeous and compelling, and and it it's like all the frills, but it doesn't yeah. feel frilly.
1: No, totally. I yeah. I mean, look to talk about like AI and algorithm is going to infect story, right? And every movie is going to be like pooped out by Save the Cat, right? And by the way, I think Save the Cat is a deeply important book. I think structure is really important. But it's so interesting how the things I most connect with are things that break rules, right? Right. Because they know the rules and then they break them. And Almodovar cares about feeling. He doesn't give a fuck about making sure that at the midpoint, there's a, you know, he he doesn't care about that stuff. I mean, maybe he does. And maybe he would say in an interview, Oh, I really care about that stuff. But however he approaches that, what seems to me to lead his films and why I love them so much are the emotion of the people, you know? And they uh, allow me to empathize and to feel and to feel stronger than I do watching most things, you know? Uh, and I think it is because he allows you to listen to this beautiful singer sing a song for a minute, you know? He's like, yeah, we're going to fucking do that. And it doesn't feel masturbatory, too. That's what is really important to me about what Almodovar does is a lot of these sort of art house filmmakers, I think can be very masturbatory because it feels like they're telling you, if you don't get it, you're not smart enough. Mm. And Almodovar never does any of that. He's not like better than you. He's not telling you he's smarter than you. Right. He actually is like just bearing his soul to you, you know? Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I connect so strongly with that movie, you know? Yeah.
0: And he's, he's doing this, but he's also not leaving the audience stranded. No. Like there, are, he uses the titles, yeah, which are, which not only places kind of in time and he does some fun stuff with uh timeline for his narrative, yeah. but also kind of lets us know like what section of the kind of story that we're, we're going to talk about. And I think it also affects the ending of like how you can interpret the ending is the, the yeah. fact that he uses the titles.
1: Uh, yeah, and also the voiceover, right? He uses voiceover so beautifully in that movie. You know, what? Well, trying
0: to I'm trying to remember when.
1: Oh yeah, because like one character will be
0: telling a yeah. story to the other, yeah. then we'll kind of see it. Yeah, uh-huh. that was. Uh, yeah, let's talk about some of the interesting choices like that. Uh, the one surprised me uh, when Roberto is that his name? Let's no Marco. Jesus Christ, uh, when Marco funny. is. Uh, uh, talking uh to the his dancer lover, whose name i 'm forgetting right now, also, yeah. and my notes are bad uh, he 's telling her about the woman that broke his heart, yeah, and so we have his f- face in the frame, like on the left hand side, and then on the right hand side, we see uh-huh. like you know his ex lover leaving the tent because of the yeah. tent uh, because of the snake in the tent. And you see that thing like that's again that's a choice and that's money like that's a whole that's a whole location a whole shoot that's a whole naked actress like there's a a
1: shit ton going on there yeah
0: and he it was worth it and um i don't know i love the fact that they that he does those things like that
1: yeah it's it's a risk right and that's the thing it's a what what people i think misunderstand especially in la the people who give you money to write things right is people want people to break form and rules. They actually want that, they like it. And I I don't mean like uh, art house people or people who live in our bubbles. I mean, you know, people in the world, most humans love that a story is different than a story they've ever heard before, right? They need certain anchors, they need something so that they can um, enjoy it, right? Just like we all do, but they like that. They like seeing, oh, I've never seen a movie all of a sudden split screen and show me the story that the person's telling. You know, maybe it hasn't been done in the history of cinema, but most people haven't seen it. And so they're going to enjoy it. It's going to make them lean in because something interesting and new is happening. Right.
0: Right. And it can be also done in fresh ways. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a lot about the execution. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the relationships. And do you have a primary relationship that you enjoyed the most? Because we have, you know, obviously we have the two two men. Yeah. I mean, that's the one for me that that's
1: it for me. You know, it's two, you know, two broken people who would not normally become best friends connecting. Right. And I usually, that is a, you know, I don't know, a trope or something that I really, really uh, latch onto and male friendship. Right. Between two sort of uh, very imperfect people, by the way. Right. I mean, one of them does a horrible thing, right.
0: Completely. Like
1: a truly uh, disgusting, horrible thing in the film. But you know, I think Amadovar is interested in people who are not perfect, who are imperfect, right? And that friendship between those two men is really, really beautiful because they're both lonely. They're both sad. They're both uh, lamenting the woman that they love, right? Uh, in different ways, right? One of them thinks that he's in love with a woman. I think there's a, you know, a sickness there that's happening. And then someone else it is the love of his life who's, who's, who's hurt, right? And um, so, I don't know. I just love watching two men connect in that way, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's a calmness about each of the uh, the actors, uh, you know, Marco, Dario, Grandinetti. Yeah. So, his energy was oh. just – it reminds me like when I read like a Murakami novel. Like, I just yeah. feel a little calmer, even though crazy yeah. shit may be going on. There's something Calm. about just his stillness and his energy that – um like I felt like he was never trying as an actor. He was just kind of being there and being present. I know. And, and part of that too, I think is the the dialogue. Like I, when I just, it feels like a different film when he goes to meet her, uh, to meet Lydia at the bar, when he's trying to pitch the story to her, their interactions are just so calm and like yeah. one sentence and then they move and leave. And it just does, feels weighty, yeah. but not boring. Yeah. Where I think of like, and I think of the two men talking, I just feel like if it's a typical, I won't say a typical, but like I feel like the American version of American scene of that would be so bouncy, yeah, so yeah. high energy. yeah. And there's just a nice weight to it. Uh, yeah. One of the relationships that I was fascinated by was with uh, El Nino and Marco, the two men who are, you know, in a relationship with Lydia, the, yeah. the bullfighter, yeah, their interactions, I was just surprising to me, just continually surprising about how there was no, there's no fist fight. There's no, no you better get out of this room. You know, there's dirty looks and there's feeling inside, but there's no, um, histrionics. I just thought yeah. that was kind of beautiful also.
1: It's so beautiful. And at the end of the day, they both just care about her. Right. Yeah. And so, which one of them is going to sacrifice for her, right? Like, sacrifice their own selfish needs for her, right? It's really yeah. complicated. And they both and, do. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's amazing, man. I mean, it, it, to me, there is, you know, I, I had a mentor in New York who would say, you know, uh, we don't want to watch people working too hard, right? And that you will know in your artistic life when something comes naturally to you. Doesn't mean it's easy, by the way, right? Mm. But when you watch, you know, Michael Jordan play basketball, it comes easy to him. It doesn't mean he didn't work really hard, right? And he doesn't work really hard. But when you're watching it, it's poetic, right? It's messy with the soccer ball at his feet, right? It feels uh, effortless. And that's what all these artists in this movie seem to be doing, right? It's Almodovar directing a film. It seems to be. Uh, natural. He's not pushing for it. He he. It just happens, you know? Because it, I think it's coming from such a real, real place, you know? Yeah. He's not trying. You know, I think a lot of art house stuff that I don't connect to is people telling me how smart they are. And <laughs> trying to be <laughs> weird. Trying to impress you. Yeah. Trying to be weird, right? Like, I'll say this. I mean, who am I to say this? But, you know, a lot of times in a Christopher Nolan movie, I feel like he's telling me how much smarter he is than me. And so I don't <laughs> like it. I go. I'm out. I don't. I don't. I don't need to know that you're smarter than me, or that (laughs) if I don't get it, if I don't get it, I'm dumb, right? Like, you know, like oh, I know what the answer is. You know, like I don't need that. Almodovar never does that in this film. You know, yeah, he he never does in any of his movies. You know, like one thing if if people are listening to this and they've never watched one of his films, you know, all I hope is that you will because you'll be happy. You know, they're so different and. A unique and uh,
0: yeah human yeah uh let's talk about some of the interesting choices that he made sure uh one i thought it was interesting that we don't see the snake when marco goes in uh to you know to save the day uh, yeah. i i thought that was an interesting choice and we just have that sound of the bat hitting uh other interesting choice again the the vagina within the silent movie, <laughs> yeah. uh you know of him climbing up on the breast and then walking down. Um, yeah. I don't know thoughts on that. Like how do you pull that off? And yet they do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember you know being nineteen years old and watching that silent film in the movie, and crying in such a visceral way. Like I was so moved by that, and I still don't really understand it. You know. I get it. I get that it's about love. It's about desire. It's a sort of like a manifestation of those feelings. Right. Um, But it's such a beautiful, I mean, if that was just a short film, it would be the best short film at that film festival you went to, you know, it's so masterfully done. It's like the best black and white silent film I've ever (laughs) seen in my life. And it's just like a little blip in this movie, you know, but again, I think it's because it, it, it is the inspiration of that, peace is emotion and it's when someone longs to be with someone right and misses them and needs them and is desperate to be with them right that this sort of mini human ends up climbing inside of the woman that he loves and sort of dying there right like that yeah. is like you know i think we all understand that and it's kind of magical realism at its best you know uh but i still every time i watch that scene there's also the soundtrack i'll say so Uh, One of the things I do to write now is I listen to the soundtracks for Almodovar movies. It's this guy, Alberto Iglesias, and he's done a lot of American movies too. And like he, to any writer listening to this, that is a go-to Spotify. You will get inspired. And the music in that movie is fucking amazing, you know?
0: Yeah, it's absolutely, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, What do you think we're supposed to feel uh, about the rape?
1: It's horrible, you know? It's so tragic. It's like, uh, you know, know, you've taken this character that you've probably fallen in love with the whole time, right? And then they do this horrible, horrible thing, right? Truly horrible, horrific thing. Yeah. And then his friend, because it's a movie about friendship, comes at the end and doesn't forgive him for the act, Mm -mm. but continues to love him even after he's done a horrible horrible thing. Yeah. And that is uh rare. It's beautiful, you know. Uh but you know, it's hard when that happens because up until that moment, he, at least for me, he's my favorite character in the film. You know, that actor's a genius. He's like oh he, my he's God. been in so many things. But he's a genius. And, you know, um you know, he has this kind of feminine energy that you think he's not a threat and you know, there's like all this stuff, right? Um but yeah, you know, it reminds me of this. Is what I'll say that last moment when the friend shows up for him at the prison, right? Not forgiving the act again. That's really important, you know. Mm-hmm. But but uh, with empathy, it reminds me of there's that video that you know is uh, of the woman, the mom, uh, who hugs the man who killed her son in a trial. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's I like on seen Instagram. It it's so moving because it's so beyond our comprehension of what a human being is capable of. Right. Right. To have even empathy for those who have committed the most heinous acts. Right. And that's how that movie ends. It's kind of an ode to friendship, you know?
0: Yeah. Friendship. And 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 I think in empathy, like you were saying, I have trouble being nice to Trump people. Yeah. Me too. A hundred less like somebody who has done that. Um, yeah, totally. And it's not just with uh, with him, but also the uh, I guess the other nurse who was in love with uh, with him as well. Yeah, you know how she's saying, "Look, I can't talk to him after what he did." But like, you're his friend; he needs you. Help him. Yes. And I thought I teared up at that. I was just yeah. like, "Oh, like you know," it, because he uh, it does a good job of like, yes, he does this horrible thing. But and like all of us, when we do things that are evil, he thinks he's right. You yeah. Know, that the conference room, like, you know, he would never hurt her. That he's like, that's right. I I would never hurt her. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. this is after he's raped her. Yeah. Because he doesn't see it as that. Yeah. You know. And he's
1: wrong, right? And he's he's
0: completely wrong. <laughs> I mean, there's just no. And and the other guy, you're right. The, uh, Marco is like, look, she, when he talks about marrying her, which I thought was brilliant. That yeah. They had that head on that somebody else heard it, and that that was kind of how it things happened. Like, um, and he says, "I thought you were different, you yeah. know." But he's not. No, this was wrong. This was terrible. She cannot say yes, you know, yeah. with her body, with her, with
1: anything. Yeah, it's the messiness of people, right? Like. You know, a a thing I'm watching right now that, you know, people raved about, but I'm just catching up is Beef. Did you watch that show on Netflix?
0: No, I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it.
1: It's great. It's amazing. But that show deals with the real messiness of human beings, right? Like, how many bad actions are too many bad actions, right? When do we lose our empathy and our uh, understanding and our love of other people, Right. And uh, it tests it. That show tests it, right? And this movie tests it, right? And I think in this time period where everything is so black and white, and you know, I do it too, I'm very guilty of this, especially when people disagree with me politically, especially when it comes to Donald Trump, right? right. They are either the worst human being, piece of shit ever, right? Or they're right and they're good and they're just. And that's not humans, right? So yeah. that's another great thing about this film is it, it challenges your your point of view on that. I think the audience is, or at least it does mine, right? Yeah, no. Yeah.
0: I think that's that's gotta be part of why of
1: why they made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh
0: if I were to continue on my journey, uh what should I do next from him?
1: Oof. Well, so all about my mother is kind of the masterpiece that I think won him the Oscar or I think talk to her, won him an Oscar too for screenplay. Yeah. You got the like, screenplay Oscar yeah. for, for this, uh, but talk to her is the masterpiece. And I think that's, I mean, uh, uh, all about my mother is amazing. Right. Uh, but there's a movie he made. Uh, what the hell is it called? It's with Antonio Banderas. It came out uh, like five years ago. The the song from the soundtrack is uh, Salvador Supermergido. Uh, I'll look it up right now. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm I'm just gonna IMDb him right now for all of us. Uh, and and I'll just go through this list and I'll just tell you which ones I think are like must watches. But that sounds perfect. Okay, I'm gonna go through his oeuvre. I haven't seen all of them. Okay. Okay. So here's the ones I recommend. So all about my mother is like you have to watch that. That's like. You know, the masterpiece. Okay. Okay. Then I would watch uh, Pain and Glory that came out uh, in 2019 with Antonio Banderas. It is like if you've ever thought Antonio Banderas is not a good actor, you watch this movie and you will forever have your opinion changed. It's like a masterful performance. And that movie's amazing. It's like three separate movies, but he somehow ties the emotion of all three. And there's a scene where Antonio Banderas is reunited with a lover from 20 years before. It's one of the most moving scenes. It's like on YouTube. People love this scene so much. It's just like Uh, one of those. It's a masterclass. You're just like, uh, and you can, the acting is just out of control. So these two gay men who haven't seen each other in 20 years and they're still in love with each other. And it's just, I can talk about it for hours. Um, I will say uh, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down is an amazing, amazing film. It has possibly one of the sexiest scenes in the history of cinema. I, I can't <laughs> recommend that movie Im- uh, 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 that movie enough. Well, so, that's the thing r- about Amol Duvar is his movies are sexy. You know, oh,
0: sensual as hell. Even yeah. again, even while he's even when uh, so he's massaging her inner thigh with the yeah. dad there,
2: yeah. and
0: not doing it in a particularly sensual way, but it's still sensual. And then, of course, some other moments were incredibly sensual yeah uh, and
1: disturbing at the same time yeah uh, he's, Peg- he's sexy man yeah like it's really you know i mean you know one one of the movies uh it, which is called Volver, which is amazing penelope cruz is amazing in that but that movie is kind of like an ode to her you know it's like so sexy it's like kind of like a love letter to just her and her entire person you know oh that's um, cool
0: yeah peggy well, tells the story when she was at college in the spanish lab watching uh time you up time you down like you know, with like thirty people all around her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like, you know, blushing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, but I understand enough of it to to get why that would not be great.
1: Oh, yeah, it's not a movie you want to watch with your parents. You know, you don't want to be <laughs> or like the first time you meet your in-laws, you don't want to go watch an Almudovar movie with him, you know? Right. Uh but it's right. funny, a friend of mine was saying this recently. Uh she was saying how movies aren't sexy anymore, right? That there's something about This is her theory. I don't know that I agree with it, but that it's so easy to access sex online, right? That like sex is less prevalent in film in a way that is artistic and beautiful and sort of titillating and exciting, right? And what I would argue to her, I said, well, I said, well, not (laughs) Amadovar. Like, you know, in, in Pain and Glory, it's one of the most beautiful gay love scenes you'll ever see in your life, right? in uh, time me up time me down it's a straight couple but it doesn't matter in his movies it's just about the emotion and it is it's 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 sensual it's beautiful you know yeah yeah
0: that's interesting i'm going to start yeah. i'm going to think about that as i'm yeah. as i'm watching some movies here yeah um anything else you've been watching or loving lately as long as you're giving us recommendations yeah sure here.
1: uh how to with john wilson on hbo have you seen this i've I seen love- it but i haven't watched it Okay, so I love this show. It's so weird. It's a guy talking to you, and he films hours and hours of New York City, and then he does these kind of like documentary editorials on certain subjects, like the one that wasn't this latest episode, but the week before is called How to Watch Sports, and he's like (laughs) this kind of nerdy, weird, quirky guy, and he tries to learn to like sports, and it leads him to a vacuum cleaner convention of people who collect vacuum cleaners. And I can't explain more to you because that doesn't make sense. But at the end of the episode, my wife and I were bawling, like bawling. Yeah. No shit. It's quirky. It's funny. It's produced by Nathan Fielder, who I love also. But it's, again, there's just nothing else like it. Like there is no other show like How To with John Wilson. And, you know, especially right now when we're fighting AI, I think I'm really leaning into things that are like anti-AI. Right, like, legitimately oh. weird human weird shit. Yeah, creativity wins. How to with John Wilson? Creativity wins. I'm a Virgo by boots Riley, who's a rapper a filmmaker who I love. Uh, his show on Amazon is wild. It's insane. Some of it doesn't even work for me, but I love it so much because it's a risk. And again, yeah. it's like it's a major middle finger to AI. You know? Yeah. It's 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 so human you know, because it's so crazy. Yeah. It's great. Absolutely.
0: I love it. Yeah. Uh, Bernardo, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you being here. Will you come back after the strike's over and we can talk some TV and
1: film shit? Sure. Of course. I'm always happy to talk to you. I, you know, this is just an excuse to catch up with a friend. So yeah, let's do
0: it. That's what most podcasts are until they're not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks again for being here. Where can people find you online? If they want to see your work, talk to me. So if you want to read my plays, you can go on New Play Exchange, which is a website. All my plays are up on there. Please read them. Produce them if you want. You know, that would be fun. Um, and then uh, uh, my on Instagram, which is the one I'm probably most active on, I'm Pinche Cubria because I have an uncle named Bernardo Cubria who took that name. So you can find me at Pinche Cubria <laughs> yeah. or Bernardo Cubria on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter anymore. Elon Musk made me run for the hills. Uh, but yeah, that's where you can find me.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much for being on the show. And thank you for introducing me to talk to her. I really of appreciate course. it. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. Bernardo's a great guy, right? And uh, thank you for listening. I, I hope you noticed that this one was under four hours. So, you know, we're trending in the right direction. Thank you also for putting up with my Amodabar, uh, Amodovar pronunciations, uh, which I've now heard both. Uh, pronunciations uh, done and also that I found him I found a YouTube clip of him on uh, one of those British talk shows and everybody was saying it wrong too so I think he's pretty forgiving with it so hopefully you'll be forgiving with me as well Uh, at any rate I hope you enjoyed it I hope you will check out uh, Talk to Her and I hope you'll check out the rest of his movies I know I plan to and uh, look for an announcement soon about our September project and who is introducing me to what or who Thanks for listening. I hope you have a great rest of the month. And we will see you soon. Until we meet again. Dana